This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 36, The War of Three Kingdoms. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by Her Grace, the Duchess of Lancaster, Trevor Sanders, Thomas Viscount Annerley, and Paul Young, Viscount Edgehill. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time, we covered the events of the alliance between the English Parliament and the Covenanter Government of Scotland. In return for the Treaty of Military Assistance against Charles I and the powerful Covenanter army, Parliament agreed to the Solemn League and Covenant, and promised to reform the Church of England along Presbyterian lines. Kind of. As we also saw, Parliament was far from unified on the question of religion. Not everyone wanted a Presbyterian system. Some wanted toleration and freedom of worship, to one extent or another, for Protestants of any stripe. For now, the military situation overwhelmed any arguments over religious nuance. That could be handled after the King's series of victories was halted with the help of the Scots. A quick note on terminology. Going forward, just so I don't have to keep saying the Solemn League and Covenant, when I mention the Covenant, I mean the Solemn League and Covenant. The National Covenant was largely supplanted by the New Covenant in relevance and membership. Likewise, when I refer to the Covenanters, I mean the Scots who subscribed to it, and specifically the Scots who subscribed to it. Unlike the National Covenant, which was meant to only have a limited subscription outside of Scotland, mainly in Ulster, the Solemn League and Covenant was intended to be taken up by all true Protestants in the Three Kingdoms and beyond. If I labelled everyone who signed the Solemn League and Covenant as a Covenanter, it would get very confusing, and would imply a unity that, as we'll see, was far from real. So even though the English Parliament will soon make subscription to the Solemn League and Covenant mandatory for its officers and officials, we'll still refer to them as Parliamentary rather than Covenanter. 
In the days after the ratification of the Solemn League and Covenant and the Treaty of Military Assistance, both Charles and his opponents took stock of the situation. On the 30th of September, the Covenanters put their money where their mouth was and occupied Berwick, one of the key border fortresses between England and Scotland. The day before, on the 29th, Charles reorganised his armies. Ralph Hopton, recovered somewhat from getting blown halfway to hell, was placed in command of a new Western army. His objective was to advance on London through Wiltshire and Hampshire, and thereby apply pressure to the capital. Lord Byron, another capable royalist officer, was given command of an army in Cheshire, and sent to reinforce the Earl of Newcastle in the north. Both armies were promised additional troops, courtesy of the cessation of arms. Soldiers from the Irish garrisons began to return over the next few months. Several thousand infantry would join Byron's army, with similar numbers joining Hopton's force. In total, around 8,000 troops would return to Britain from Ireland to join the Royalist forces. The vast majority were infantry, with a few hundred cavalry sprinkled in for colour. Of these 8,000, almost all of them were English and Welsh, and most of these had been sent over to Ireland in the wake of the rebellion. A fraction No more than a thousand had any established roots in Ireland, either in property or family, and a fraction of that fraction were Catholic. As we've already mentioned, Parliament would have a field day with this propaganda win. Clearly, their prince declared, these Irish reinforcements were Irish, they were Catholic, and they were the same monsters who had so brutally killed tens of thousands of innocent English and Welsh settlers. It was an easy claim to make, but it isn't accurate. As Peter Gaunt puts it in the English Civil War and Military History, quote, In reality, their only links with the Irish Rebellion had been to oppose it. End quote. The actual impact these reinforcements had on the King's cause was limited. By spring 1644, the flow of Royalist reinforcements was shut off. Parliament controlled the bulk of the Royal Navy and dominated the Irish Sea. Any ships sailing for British shores could usually be intercepted, and many were. In at least one case, in July 1644, after he intercepted one of these ships, the parliamentarian commander had 50 men thrown overboard. Let them, quote, swim to their own country. Those 8,000 men who did make it across the sea were far less useful than their raw numbers might suggest. After all, Many of these soldiers had been locked in a brutal war for years against the Confederacy and the rebellion before that. The King's truce with those Confederates was an outrage. Even for those who understood Charles's larger perspective, that after his victory in England he could send them back to Ireland to exact justice on the rebels, it was a hard pill to swallow. There were many who were far less sympathetic to the King's position. A significant portion of those who sailed over in the winter of 1643-44 to would defect to Parliament if they wanted to keep fighting, or just deserted if they did not. In the immediate short term, those new arrivals who were sent to reinforce Lord Byron would soon question why they bothered sailing over in the first place. In one of the first major actions of 1644, Lord Byron took his army and besieged the town of Nantwich in Cheshire. After a couple of attempts to storm the town failed and his demands to surrender were ignored, 
Byron established a loose cordon around Nantwich to cut off the town until they changed their minds. To the east, Sir Thomas Fairfax had had a busy few months, and he was looking forward to giving his men some rest and getting supplies and pay from Parliament. But the only thing which Parliament sent him were his orders. Relieve Nantwich. Taking on a loan to supply his men, Fairfax marched west from Gainsborough, rendezvousing with the Parliamentary Army at Manchester. With this combined force, they would march south and force Byron off Nantwich. Byron's picket of Nantwich intercepted a letter from Fairfax which urged the garrison to stay determined. He was on his way. Byron immediately wrote to the Earl of Newcastle, the royalist commander in the north, and requested that he send a force south to intercept Fairfax. Just a few days of delay would mean the surrender of Nantwich for the king. But Newcastle had a much more pressing problem to worry about, the imminent Scottish invasion, and Fairfax went on his merry way. Let's quickly talk about intelligence. Parliament's Committee of Safety, which is not long for this world, more on that later, was far more capable when it came to information gathering and dissemination than the Royalist Council of War. They knew more, and they made sure that the people who needed to know knew. The Nantwich siege is one such example. Oxford had no idea that Parliament was gathering forces at Manchester. Byron began to prepare for Fairfax's arrival, breaking off the siege and gathering for battle, but he only learned exactly where Fairfax was when his vanguard ran into Byron's picket a day's march away. Fairfax received intelligence on exactly when Byron broke off his cordon, and he knew that Byron wanted battle and wasn't retreating. The two armies met on the 25th of January, and it was a resounding victory for Fairfax and Parliament. More than a thousand royalists were taken prisoner, with at least 200 killed outright. The setting sun had been the only thing which prevented further losses. The newly arrived Irish regiments, so recently returned from fighting the Confederates, collapsed. Adding insult to injury, plenty of those troops captured or surrendered defected to Parliament, swearing the Solemn League and Covenant. Partly, these defections can be explained as ordinary in a civil war like this. Officers and soldiers switch sides all the time. But the impact of the King's peace with the Irish can be seen here. Charles had signed the cessation at the price of Protestant resentment in order to get these men back into England. Now, at least partly because of that cessation, those soldiers would fight against the King. Charles had, in a sense, tarnished his reputation in order to give Parliament more men. And this isn't the end of the consequences of the cessation. In contrast, the Solemn League and Covenant and the Treaty of Military Assistance completely overturned the situation in the North for Parliament. The Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, arrived in England at the head of 22,000 men in January. Parliamentary presses eagerly listed the names and careers of every officer from Major up, emphasising the experience so many of them had of European warfare. Five of the six members of the general staff were Swedish veterans. Three of them were Leslies. One of those Leslies was one David Leslie, who we'll see much more of soon. Levin's first stop in England was to Newcastle, held by the royalist Sir Thomas Glemham. Levin wasn't concerned about Newcastle. The garrison wasn't a threat, 
and he'd already agreed with both his Scottish and English superiors that if Glemham didn't surrender the city, he should leave a token force to besiege it and move on. His army captured a series of fortifications and blockhouses in the area, along with seizing a large amount of coal. London always needed fuel, and it had suffered a shortage over the winter of 1643-44. to Leven gladly offered the coal to Parliament, but informed them that any ships sent to collect it should bring supplies for his army. Leven's army, as they had during the Second Bishop's War, maintained strict discipline against the English population. Even when supplies were low, and Parliament's promises increasingly came up empty, Leven mostly restrained his men from simply pillaging what they needed. Not only did the Covenanters have to consider the political fallout to violent behaviour, but this was a godly army. They had standards that would be enforced. Looters, rapists, and murderers often found themselves facing the death penalty. Leven's main opponent in the north was, of course, the Earl of Newcastle, who now had at his side someone we haven't seen for a while, and only then very briefly. James King, yet another Scottish continental veteran and former comrade-in-arms of Leven. He'd been sent to Europe to try and gather support for Charles, and had returned in the company of Henrietta Maria. King is now, at this point, the first Lord Aethon, and that's how we'll refer to him. Despite his personal issues with Newcastle, Aethon was made the Earl's Lieutenant General of Foot, and was one of his chief military advisers. Along with Riven leading Charles's Oxford army, Murdoch and Grosjean point out, the two main royalist field armies in England were effectively commanded by Scottish veterans of Swedish service, end quote. The Swedes themselves were paying close attention to these events. Leven's campaign focused on the major fortifications of the north, especially, as we will see, York. Leven advanced cautiously south through February and March. On the 16th of April, communications were finally established between Leven and General Ferdinando Fairfax and his son Thomas. They had, only days before, captured the town of Selby, and Leven decided to link up with his allies before attempting to confront Newcastle. Two days later, the Fairfaxes arrived at the Covenanter camp, and Leven led them on an inspection of his force. Leven then visited the Fairfax camp the next day. These weren't just complimentary visits, though they were certainly a show of respect between two allies. They had the practical effect of showing both the Covenanter and the Parliamentarian officers what forces their allies brought to the table. Both Leven and the Fairfaxes were impressed with each other, and agreed to link up outside of York and besiege it. With additional reinforcements from the Earl of Manchester's Eastern Association, so formed the army of both kingdoms, with Leven in overall command. So the alliance with the Scots seemed to be paying dividends. John Pym, who had spearheaded the alliance, must have been thrilled to be proven right. Well, about that. For the last few years, Pym had suffered from an agonising intestinal illness, which was probably bowel cancer. Despite this, he had arranged and negotiated the Scottish alliance, been a key leader of the Committee of Safety, instituted and guided the Westminster Assembly, and established the administrative infrastructure Parliament needed to fight a war, national and county committees, and the taxation needed to pay for armies and supplies. On top of all of this extra parliamentary work, he remained a tireless leader of the Long Parliament's House of Commons. All the while, his health just got worse and worse. 
But John Pym didn't have time to die. He was too busy. Until he was forced to make time. On the 8th of December, 1643, John Pym died in bed. And so passes another of Charles's pre-war opponents. Like with John Hamden, royalists celebrated his death. But Pym's passing would leave a political vacuum that would soon be filled. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Eagle-eared listeners might have noticed I mentioned Levan having Scottish and English superiors. With the signing of the Covenant, and the entry of the Scots into the Civil War under the Treaty of Military Assistance, it was decided that some kind of unified organisation had to be established. And so the Committee for Both Kingdoms was formed in February 1644. This replaced the Committee of Safety, which had been the effective executive body of Parliament up until this point. The Committee for Both Kingdoms was not just a rebranding of its predecessor. It had far greater authority over the war effort than the Committee of Safety, answering to Parliament but able to act as it saw fit on matters of war. The Committee was made up of seven members of the House of Lords, fourteen from the House of Commons, and, as to be expected from the name, four Scottish Commissioners. Naturally, the Earl of Essex, as Parliament's Lord General, was on the Committee as one of the Lords, as was their Lord High Admiral, the Earl of Warwick. Also among the Lord Representatives was the Earl of Manchester and Viscount Say and Seal. Of the 14 members of the House of Commons, we have Oliver St. John, Arthur Haselrig, and Sir William the Conqueror Waller, both Henry Vane's, the Elder and the Younger, and one Oliver Cromwell, among others. Three of the four Scottish Commissioners are likewise known to us, or will be soon, the Earl of Loudoun, Johnson of Warriston, and John Viscount Maitland. What's especially interesting is the large number of independents, those resistant to Presbyterianism, on this committee, most notably Cromwell and Vane the Younger. That will be relevant. Despite being on this committee, which mandated the signing of the Covenant, Cromwell himself waited until the very last moment, the 4th of February, before signing it himself. 
He needed to do so in order to return to his command, which was a promotion from just a cavalry colonel in a war full of cavalry colonels to the lieutenant general of horse and foot in the Eastern Association Army. He was now the second in command to the Earl of Manchester. Cromwell's star was rising, and so too was the cause of the independence. The Committee for Both Kingdoms will try and manage the war from Westminster, but despite having more authority on paper, they will often find their officers out in the field resistant to their orders. Back in Oxford, a new political body assembled on the 22nd of January 1644. Well, I say new but it was anything but new. It was Parliament. Technically, it was the same Parliament as the one in London. What will become known as the Oxford Parliament was the brainchild of Sir Edward Hyde, who saw in it an ideal opportunity to damage the legitimacy of the London Parliament. Charles could not simply dissolve the London Parliament. Putting aside the reality that he was fighting a war against them, and that they weren't really in a listening mood, he'd given his assent to the bill which prevented its dissolution without its own consent. So not only would declaring the Parliament dissolved achieve nothing, but it would damage the King's claim to be fighting for law and order. Hyde said none of that mattered. Parliament was like Asgard. It wasn't a place, it was a people. The King could simply summon his Parliament to assemble at Oxford, and those who supported him would come. And so they did. On the 22nd of December 1643, Charles sent out his summons, inviting all MPs and lords who had fled London already to come to Oxford and take their seats. For those still in London who were willing to abandon the parliamentary cause, he offered full pardons. Clearly, the Westminster Parliament was no longer a free parliament. If mob rule had threatened its deliberations in 1641, the Hunto's army dialed the intimidation up to eleven. That was what royalists claimed, anyway. A total of 82 peers and 175 MPs replied with their willingness to attend, which was quite a success. This was most of the House of Lords, and around a third of the House of Commons. Now, those numbers would be lower when the Parliament actually met in January. 44 Lords arrived versus the 82 who had RSVP'd, and only 118 MPs from the 175 maybes. Most of the absences were due to the war, either due to fighting in it or being unable to travel because of it. For example, Ralph Hopton, commander of one of Charles's armies, was one of the MPs for Wells. When the Oxford Parliament met, Charles welcomed them, promising all that parliamentary freedom which would be due to them if they were with him at Westminster, and which, with all their other privileges, they should enjoy at Oxford, though they could not at the other place. End quote. It unanimously denounced the Long Parliament's alliance with the Scots and the Solemn League and Covenant, and declared that their Westminster counterparts were, quote, not a free or full convention. An invitation was sent to the Earl of Essex, who of course had a seat waiting for him at the true Parliament, to come along and help bring about peace. In reply, Essex made his own invitation, return to London and take the Solemn League and Covenant as all good Protestants were. This had an effect on some of the Oxford MPs, who were angry at the King's peace with the Irish Confederacy, and some returned to London. But many stayed. In March 1644, the Oxford Parliament tried to open peace talks with the Westminster Parliament, 
but the original Parliament refused. The Oxford Parliament was not legitimate in their eyes. In return, the Oxford Parliament denounced Westminster as traitors, not only for raising arms against their rightful sovereign, but for inviting a foreign army, the Covenant of Scots, into England. Maybe I've just been listening to too much of the history of Byzantium, but this just makes me think of the Great Schism. Both parliaments excommunicating the other and claiming they truly represent England. The dispute between the two parliaments actually hampered any peace negotiations between the King and Westminster. The Oxford Parliament did, however, do what parliaments had done for generations, voted taxation. An excise was approved by the Parliament. Now, Charles could have simply imposed it without parliamentary approval. He was fighting a rebellion. These were not ordinary circumstances. But again, it was important that these actions have legal authority, even if his opponents claimed the Oxford Parliament was illegitimate. But grass is green, the sky is blue, and Charles I really doesn't like parliaments. If there's one constant, one ever-present element of early Stuart England, it's that. And this is still the case, even when it's a parliament made up, by the process of civil war, of his supporters. It wasn't long before Charles complained about our mongrel parliament. The Oxford parliament had the annoying habit of asking the king to come to terms with Westminster, which was a noble objective to be sure, but from the king's perspective, Westminster demanded his complete surrender on issues vitally important to his kingship. Charles was determined to fight this war. He was determined to win this war. And his new parliament would be better focused on raising money and men for that fight. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It was not only England that was divided. Behind covenantal lines, the situation was not entirely secure. The Earl of Montrose remained a thorn in the covenant aside. On the 28th of January, he had formally agreed to a plan with the Earl of Antrim. Antrim would raise an army in Ireland and invade the west and northwest of Scotland, conveniently where his hated rivals, the Campbells of Argyll, held their lands. Montrose would return to Scotland, raise a royalist force there, and take the fight to the Covenanters. Antrim's commission styled him the General of the Highlands and Islands. Montrose was Lieutenant General of Scotland. Two weeks later, Montrose was promoted. Now he was commissioned as the Lieutenant Governor of Scotland and Captain General of all Scottish forces. He was also styled as a Marquis, a promotion which would become official on the 6th of May. We'll hear more about Montrose next episode. He's about to embark on what has since been called the Year of Victories. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the royal favourite Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Wellington, Sue Bremner, the Duke of Brace, David Braswell, the Duke of Bristol, Will Winkus, the Marquess of Coventry, Liam Hunter, and Stephen, Earl of Warwick. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. All of this supports me in one way or another, either by keeping a roof over my head, or helping the podcast grow. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. 
What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.